Everything you're hearing is from the Home Depot, from the baseboards and nails, to these throw pillows, even those super soft sheets. Because now at the Home Depot, you can get everything for your bedroom, from wooden nightstands to modern benches. Save up to 25% on select bedroom furniture, plus free and flexible delivery and easy in-store returns. Shop decor now at homedepot.com. More saving, more kinds of doing. Valid on select items online only. Free delivery on select items, $45 or more. Visit homedepot.com for more information. Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about infertility. Today we're going to be talking about how infertility affects the male partner. Uh, The men are often overlooked in this infertility struggle, so today we're going to try to right that balance. Our guests today to talk about this really important topic are Dr. Elizabeth Grill. She is the Associate Professor of Psychology at the Center for Reproductive Medicine and Infertility Weill Medical College at Cornell University and Dr. Ali Domar. She is the Executive Director at the Domar Center for Mind, Body, Health at Boston IVF, as well as an Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Harvard Medical School. I have so enjoyed this topic. I think you will, too. Here is a sample of what you're going to hear. In many cases, the treatment for male factor is to have their partner go through an IVF cycle. And then have her have they do what's called ICSI, where they can inject one sperm into an egg, and so the men feel awful because the the their partner their or their wife um, who is probably reproductively normal is thus going through an IVF cycle to compensate for his infertility or subfertility. The Creating a Family Radio Show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring Pharmaceutical wants you to know about a new tool currently available for just men called Fertistrong. It is the new self-help fertility support mobile app specifically designed for the men in your life or for men in general. The app provides techniques to empower men with knowledge and self-help skills throughout the stressful journey of infertility. To learn more about the Fertistrong app, you can go to fertistrong.com. Dot com. Let me spell that, F-E-R-T-I, strong, S-T-R-O-N-G, dot com. And uh, our guests today are the inventors of the Strong app. So welcome, Dr. Grill, and welcome, uh, Dr. Domar, to Creating a Family to talk about Strong. Allie, let Thanks me start so with... Oh, good. Allie, I, I should probably call you Dr. Domar since we know each other personally. No, it's okay. I, 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 okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> You and uh, and uh, Liz, uh, I'll call you by the doctors. Uh, you and Dr. Grill uh, de- uh, came up with the idea for Fertistrong. There was already an app existing called Ferticom, which was geared for women. Well, actually, it probably wasn't just exclusively geared for women, but I think women were probably the primary users of it. And it t- presented cognitive, behavioral, and relaxation techniques that uh, patients can use when they're in in, uh, in treatment, uh, before treatment, and, and quite frankly, um, those techniques are equally appropriate to use uh, after treatment, either successful or unsuccessful. So, Allie, why did you all come up with the idea for, or how did you come up with the idea, for making an app just for men? 
Well, thanks, Don. Um, it's interesting because you know Liz and I, <clears throat> sorry, had created Ferticom, which launched about 14 months ago, and it's been very popular, which is great. It, I think it really does fulfill a need. It is designed specifically for women, and you know, in the first few months, you know, we got all this positive feedback, and we got some lovely you know emails from from women who were using it, and in fact, the only criticism we got was that it was just for women. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful, Ferticom is a beautiful app. It's in pastel colors. It's a flower. Yeah, and it's very true. pretty. Yeah. <laughs> but it, I do say, I didn't design it, so I can say that. Um, yeah, and it's no, very it's pretty, true. but, you know, my patients and, and emails we're getting were like, well, what about the guys? And so we realized very quickly that we needed to come up with an app for men. And that's where Ferdistrong came from. Yeah, um, we get a uh, we have a, a comment from one of our uh, online community, uh, Lou, and she says it's interesting. People ask me all the time about infertility, but no one in our family or circle of friends has ever once asked about how my husband is doing. Do you find, Doctor Grill, do you find this to be a common response that men? It's as if it's men are not even a part of the infertility struggle. Absolutely. I mean, I think clinically, Ali and I know from working with men and women and couples for so long that men are a big part of this and they have a voice that's not often heard. But I think now we're getting the support we need from a lot of the research and surveys that are coming out really just in the past few months out of the UK and here from Faring and Resolve, they just came out with one, that men really complain that the treatment can feel very one-sided and geared more towards women, and they're feeling marginalized, and they're starting to really speak up and say, hey, this isn't just a woman's issue. You know, 40% of the time it's a man's issue too. And even if it's not male infertility, the men are there supporting the women through it. And so it's a couple's issue if, if there's a partnership and a relationship that's involved in this. I'm so glad you said that. It's not just uh, when we, a lot of the, the, the comments we got were focusing exclusively on male infertility. But we're a male factor. We're, as you point out, uh, 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 although the statistics differ, but you know, uh, roughly of at least a third um, are are exclusive to male factor. But the men are impacted, even if it's not. But we're gonna we're gonna talk about we're gonna break that out. But I'm glad you uh, you raised that as an issue. I'd like to start talk with talking about when the male is the primary cause. Um, uh, Dr. Grill, you just gave a statistic. So what are the current stats that we're using? Uh, we, we used to kind of uh, uh, be, give a crude statistic of saying about a third a woman, about a third the man, and about a third uh, a combination where it's, it's a cofactor. What are the uh, current stats that you're seeing where uh, male factor is the primary cause for a couple's infertility? I think that's about right. I think it's, you know, about 40% of the time it's a male factor issue. Often it's unexplained or it's both people that have an issue when they come in for treatment. Yeah, or subfertility on both or something uh, along those lines. Exactly. Uh, uh, Dr. Domar, how are how is the impact of of the emotional component how might it differ when it is the man that is the primary cause for the infertility? Um, it's a good question. You know, the, the men I have seen, you know, in, in front of their partners, they tend to put on a brave front, and, you know, they basically want to support their wives. But if you see these men privately, 
you know, they feel very guilty because, you know, these days most infertility treatment for male factor, I mean, there are some treatment that are for men. I mean, some men who have specific diagnoses need to be on medication or have surgery, but in, in many cases the treatment for male factor is to have their partner go through an IVF cycle and then have her have they do what's called ICSI where they can inject one sperm into an egg. And so the men feel awful because the the their partner their or their wife, um, who is probably reproductively normal, is thus going through an IVF cycle to compensate for his infertility or subfertility. And so for every injection she has to receive, every blood test, every ultrasound, the egg retrieval, you know, he feels responsible. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because when we wrote the Ferticom app, it, it's, it's all for women, you know, what they can do to feel better. It's all, as you said, cognitive behavioral and relaxation strategies. For Ferta Strong, um, it's sort of half what the man can do for himself, and it's half for what he can do to better support his partner. But I think it's really important that we address you know, as Dr. Groh was saying, what the men are going through, because the recent research really shows that these men are suffering, the majority of men. You know, a recent study at a UCSF by Lori Pash and her colleagues has shown that the majority of men have clinical levels of anxiety, and, you know, about a third of them have clinical levels of depression. And up until now, no one has really paid attention to the men. They absolutely haven't. And I also, I wonder, in our society, we have such a narrow definition of maleness, and virility is a part of that. So, Dr. Grill, how, how, how does our societal expectations for what a man uh, is supposed to be able to do and, and what, how we define maleness and masculinity, um, how, does that, how, how does that factor in? Even if we're, even if a lot of men are not acknowledging it, that's because I think that we all know that it, 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 it's hard to acknowledge that you think less of yourself because you you don't have enough sperm, something that is a physical issue. But I think that for so many men, it is an issue. I'm so glad you're asking that question. Yeah, these traditional definitions of masculinity really create a lot of shame for men. So you know, male potency and virility is really associated culturally, religiously, psychologically, with a man's ability to perform, you know, in this really primitive sense of being able to impregnate his partner. And so men really don't want to talk about this because they see infertility as a sexual disorder. And so there's a lot of avoidance of the topic. So there's a real invasiveness of the medical treatment, which, you know, dampens intimacy between a couple and sex becomes, you know, not for pleasure, but becomes about procreation. And mm-hmm. instead of it being an expression of intimacy, it becomes work. And sex as an expression of love becomes sex as an expression of failure. And so men feel incredibly ashamed. Women are very frustrated. And they don't talk about it. And, and they need to because they will feel incredibly validated when they can come sit in, you know, our offices and finally understand that this is completely normal. The feel, yeah. And, and Dr. Domar, how often does impotency become a secondary factor, the pressure that Liz just described, the pressure to perform, the pressure to impregnate, the pressure, pressure, to, the pressure to do it whenever the timing is right? Uh, 
I think impotency uh, would be, I mean, all that pressure could certainly lead to performance failure. So how often is that becoming a problem? And it seems like that would even then doubly compound the feeling of worthlessness. Um, the last study I saw shows that showed that 10% of couples report mid-cycle impotence. But I'm going to defer this to Dr. Grill because she's a certified sex therapist. Um, Liz, do you have more recent data? Yeah, you know, there's several different um, problems that arise. One of them is definitely erectile dysfunction, and we see that about 20% of the men, while they're going through infertility treatment, can experience um, erectile dysfunction based on what we were just talking about, the performance on demand. So the woman's ovulating. She's feeling the pressure to make this happen. The man knows this. The pressure is on him to make this happen. And it doesn't happen, you know, and so it's, it goes against everything we know about what intimacy and pleasure is supposed to be about. And so there's a lot of sexual avoidance that is sort of secondary to this problem as well. So you can have a lot of sexual dysfunction that comes up as people are trying to negotiate this journey of trying to build a family together. So for uh, a couple who is facing the secondary problem of erectile dysfunction, and let's assume that it hasn't been a problem before so that it is more directly related. Uh, would Fertacom be, uh, I'm sorry, Fertastrong be of help for that? If not, what could we suggest that uh, couples could do to uh, address not the, the infertility itself, the male factor infertility, but the, the secondary complication of erectile dysfunction or impotency? So there's absolutely something on the app. There is a topic called sex, and when you press on that portion of the app, you are led to the subcategories of I'm just a stud service, performance (laughs) anxiety, (laughs) um, I've lost my mojo, and this is a job versus joy of sex. And so right on the app, (laughs) you have you know, hands-on information, advice, everything you need right at your fingertips on your phone to look through different suggestions both in terms of thoughts and social solutions, meaning what you can talk to your partner about, um, behavioral techniques that you can do to change what's going on. So it's all right there. Excellent. We have a question from Ronald. He thanks us for for doing this topic. You're welcome, Ronald. Uh, He's asking about, he says, the easy solution to the problem is donor sperm. I know that, and I think that my wife would prefer that. However, that leaves me feeling very left out, and I worry about my future relationship with my child, and I worry that I will not have the family that I wanted. Um, Ronald brings up the uh, uh, uh Dr. Domar, you had mentioned uh, that ICSI, intercytoplasmic sperm injection, has really revolutionized the treatment in many ways of male factor infertility as long as a sperm is available. It is not inexpensive. Uh, of course, it is a, uh, uh, has to be accompanying an IVF cycle. It's not inexpensive, and, and although donor sperm is, is not uh, uh, free, it is certainly by comparison, assu- assuming that the woman has no fertility issues. Um, it is certainly less expensive. So it sounds like uh, Ronald is feeling pressure to uh, take the easy solution. Um, Any thoughts on that, Dr. Domar? Well, I I guess I wouldn't feel like donor sperm is an easy solution. I mean, I I think the female partner, you know, might feel it's an easy solution. It's certainly easier for her 
to undergo donor sperm rather than an IVF cycle. And you're absolutely right that IVF with ICSI is not cheap. Um, I guess I would, at, for, I would make a number of recommendations. One is that they, they fully explore their options with a, with a mm-hmm. physician, an infertility specialist, to make sure that there is, you know, that, that if they can't afford IVF with ICSI, you know, is there anything else a physician, and specifically an andrologist, would recommend? An andrologist is a urologist who specializes in male factor issues. And so, you know, you'd want to make sure they've explored what medical options there might be and what medical options they can afford. I would say, secondly, if it's pretty clear that either IVF with ICSI is not a medical option for them or it's not a financial option for them, I think it would be vastly beneficial for Ronald, um, probably by himself and maybe at some point later with his partner, to speak to a mental health professional who specializes in reproductive medicine. And it's very mm-hmm. easy to find. You, there, you know, there's the mental health professional group um, at the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, and all they have to do is go to ASRM.org. And I think there are at least 400 members of um, the mental health professional group, and all of us are well-versed in talking to individuals and couples who are faced with difficult choices, you know, equally difficult between, you know, getting comfortable with the concept of donor sperm, you know, and the same as with donor egg. Yeah, uh, and uh, we on the creatingafamily.org website, we have many resources for finding, how to find, including a link to the mental health professional group that uh, Dr. Domar just mentioned. Um, And the other thing that I might throw out is, uh, although it's complicated, would be to uh, join a support group or talk with other people who have faced the same issue. The problem that raises is that there aren't a lot of support groups, that, uh, particularly that focus on men. Uh, Creating a Family has a huge online support group, over 8,000 people, but the vast majority of members are women. We, now, we have had men with questions um, Interestingly, and we'll talk about this a little later, but uh, uh, it's usually their wives who post the question, and then the wives of the husbands come back. And we've had a couple of times where there have been uh, uh, private messages going then between the husbands that have been connected through their women. But uh, do uh, Dr. Grill or Dr. Domar, do either of you know of any specific type of support groups um, that would just be for men who are facing male factor? You know, my suggestion would be to look at the Resolve.org website because Resolve has support groups, in, I think, in every state. Um, although, you know, I was on the board for 10 years. I just cycled off. Um, mm-hmm. Liz, you're still on the board. Um, so I would ask her, are there still support groups in every state? There are still support groups in every state. I think it's the same thing that Dom was just mentioning, that mostly they're filled with women. Mm-hmm. Having run support groups in the past, both at Cornell and through Resolve, I know that we, when we have tried historically to build men-only support groups, we don't get a lot of involvement. That mm-hmm. being said, when we offer um, support groups to women and then we have them invite their partners in one evening, we do find that the men will sort of come in for for one night and join and then find it very beneficial to talk to other men who are experiencing the same things. I know in one of the recent surveys that was just done, men were really requesting more online resources. And I think yeah. that's why Ali and I really felt that, you know, Fur to Strong would be a really nice vehicle for men to talk about this. 
that's one of the things that when I first heard about Fertistrong that uh, perked up my ears because I, we certainly have seen that men are more comfortable uh, doing it online. There's, a, there's an element of anonymity. But the other thing about uh, Fertistrong is that it allows them to do it on their own. It doesn't give them the in-person support, but it does allow them um, to seek solutions um, in, the, in the privacy uh, of their own home, car, whatever. So I see that as a as a huge advantage. Um, and I'll just have, I'll just add to that quickly yeah, that it, you know it also offers um, validation to them. While it's not the same, of course, as sitting in a room with other men and being able to talk about these issues, when they read through the material and they see what's listed on the app, they will feel instantly validated and know mm-hmm. that they're not alone because they'll exactly. see, oh yeah, I'm feeling that way or that makes sense. So, and it is so helpful to not feel alone. Um, if for if for just human beings, we don't want to feel that we are abnormal in our feelings. So knowing that you're not uh, takes away a huge amount of the uh, of some of the anxiety I think that comes along with this. We have a can question. Can I just add from, one thing? I'm sorry. Please. I'm sorry, John. Yeah. Can I just add one thing? Is that I, I want to um, clarify that. Um, Dr. Grill and I wrote the content for Ferticom, and because the two of us have far more experience working with women than men, to write the content for Ferta Strong, we actually brought in two of our colleagues who specialize in doing research and, and patient in, in clinical work with men. So it's, the actual content was written by Dr. Janet Takifman and Dr. Bill Petock, who see men and do research with men pretty much on a daily basis. And I, I think that, you know, when you were laughing at some of the names of the categories on Fertistrong, you know, Dr. Petock is, is a guy. And so he <laughs> added that guy's perspective yeah. to the app. And so I think that I don't want people to think that the Fertistrong was written by the two of us because we're both female. In fact, you know, Dr. Petock, you know, sees men on a daily basis. And, and so his voice comes out very clearly in Fertistrong. Yeah, and that's I think I think that I think that was brilliant because that's really important. Um, in this particular uh, comment we received, it, it, it's it's sad. Um, it's from um, well, I won't even use her name. She said, uh, "My mother has asked me why I don't just leave him." Last week, my husband on his own suggested that I would be better off leaving him and finding a man who could get me pregnant and fulfill my lifelong oh. dream. Isn't yeah. That's, um, I don't think she's alone, but I, um, uh, it makes me sad that her mother suggested it, but it even makes me sadder that her husband felt that. Um, both of you work with couples. Uh, is this something, it is something that we see in our support group, uh, not frequently, although women will say that they have heard it from other people. But, in fact, there was one woman who said that uh, someone at her church said, this is a while back, this was a couple of years ago, uh, in a post, but she said that someone in her church had said, it's, this is your own fault because you could leave him and find a man uh, who is fertile. So oh. this is your fault. Um, yeah, so how, how common is this, uh, do you think, Dr. Grill? I mean, so common. We, we know that depression and anxiety are equal to patients who are diagnosed with heart disease and cancer and HIV. You know, we know on the life event scale that the failure of IVF is 
rated equal to breast cancer and death and divorce. So what these couples are going through is just a tremendous amount of strain and stress equal to some of the worst things people can experience in their life. And so these questions of blame and should I leave and the pressure they get from relatives and friends, you know, the inability to conceive or give birth to a child often forces couples to reevaluate everything in their lives. You know, their sexuality, their self-esteem, their self-image, their cultural expectations, the expectations of family members, um, the meaning of their emotional and sexual relationship. And so mm-hmm. these are very common feelings, and, and kudos to the person that wrote in for, for being vulnerable enough to share what so many people are experiencing, which is the grief and stress and sadness that goes along with trying to build a family when you can't do it the way you thought you would. Mm-hmm. And you know, is, I, I have had... Sorry, I've had lots of patients voice, both men and women, voice the exact same thing. Like, you know, mm-hmm. my partner should leave me and and marry someone fertile. And, you know, it's pretty rare, you know, maybe in royalty this happens, but it's pretty rare for someone to marry somebody for their eggs or sperms. You know? You don't fall in love with someone because you think they're going to have great sperms. And it just it's it's just not I mean, ideally of course, you know, most couples would like to produce a child that's a mixture of their genetic material. But I I think I've once in my career had a patient voice the fact that, you know, that they are upset that their partner is is infertile. But otherwise what you tend to see far more frequently is tremendous empathy and a need and a follow-through of reassuring the partner that you did not marry them for their eggs or sperm. You know, but it it is a death of a dream for many people. Uh, mm-hmm. the, for sure. Uh, a death of a dream of, if even if uh, treatment is successful, it's still the death of a dream of, of easy conception, you know, lighting the candles, opening a bottle of wine, and, and welcoming a baby <laughs> nine months later. You know, mm-hmm. so there are... Um, no, I don't think that people marry someone. Women don't marry men for their sperm, but many women have the dream of of having children, and as you point out, the dream of having the, of course, perfect match of of your spouse's uh, genes with your genes, uh, and uh, so I think that's where it. I think that's probably where it comes in. No, they didn't marry him for the sperm, but they um, they didn't think that that they. It shouldn't be this hard. That it wasn't. It still. This is. It wasn't in part of their plan. I think would be a better way to say it. Well, that's grief uh, work. It's grieving exactly. the the grieving plan A, and spending a lot of time grieving plan A, talking to yes. professionals about it, and yes. then realizing that plan B, while it wasn't what you had anticipated being a part of your life, plan B can be a wonderful, wonderful dream as well, and an amazing plan, but not without grieving the loss of mm-hmm. plan A if that's what the direction is. Absolutely. You know, I I've seen I've seen sorry, I've seen lots of couples who were faced with the need to use donor sperm and it can take a long time. I mean, I think the worst thing one can do is to rush into plan B. And you know, that's sort of when I put on my my child protective hat cuz I I actually trained as a, a child psychologist is that I don't feel like anyone should move forward with anything until they feel comfortable with that. And, you know, I, I have a patient now, now actually, and it, it took them somewhere between one to two years before he really could 
embrace and get excited about using donor sperm. And, you know, and once he got to that point, then they proceeded and at this point and they were successful and they have a beautiful baby and the husband is just ecstatic and feels very bonded and, you know, is is a 50% parent. But I, I think you know, you, yeah, you, I, he has to be ready for that. And I would I would add that I think that would apply to any form of non-genetic parenting, adoption certainly, and, and mm-hmm. but but as you point out, donor sperm or donor embryo, it's um, it is actually probably one of my big soapboxes, is to, it is not the next step up the infertility escalator, uh, or or ladder or whatever analogy you want. It is a step onto a different ladder, and it, it's a wonderful ladder. It's a great ladder. It's a great way to build your family, but it's not the same, and I really worry about people who hurriedly, I just want a baby, any baby, the fastest baby I can get, and without spending well, the time to to honor the fact that 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 there is some grief work that needs to happen. Go ahead. Well, ASRM guidelines are that that people should not move on to using a third party, whether it's for, you know, egg donation, sperm donation, or embryo um, donation, um, that, that they really need to see a mental health professional, N- not as a gatekeeper. It's not like a mental health professional is going to say, you can't do this, but to, you know, to explore and to ask questions mm-hmm. because everyone deserves to have two parents who want them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And- and I'll, you know, I'll add that the, the the medical field is there to help you have a child, to help you build a family. And so sometimes the next best advice you're going to get from a physician is you may want to consider um, having surgical sperm aspiration and then having backup sperm ready to go in case they don't find anything. And all of these things are rational and correct and the right way to go medically if it makes sense to the couple. But emotionally and psychosocially, that's a big, huge leap of faith. That's a big jump. And so to slow down that process and to say, okay, so maybe this is our plan B, but what does that really look like and feel like? And I can't tell you the number of times I've been called over to the hospital from my office because... You know, she's coming out of an egg retrieval. He's coming out of a Tessie procedure. They didn't find sperm. They have backup sperm. And they're both coming out of surgical procedures, having to make this huge life decision whether or not to form embryos with backup donor sperm. So sometimes, you know, freezing and waiting and talking and grieving, sometimes that's really what is necessary before moving on. Boy, it seems like that's a conversation that everyone should have had before before anesthesia for sure. Yeah, because mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, at that point the desperate need to to slow things down and um, yeah, I uh, we certainly know from the world of adoption and from research that's been done in the world of adoption, uh, less research uh, with uh, donor sperm and certainly less with donor embryo, but um, as you said, every child deserves to be fully wanted by both parents, and and no child wants to be Plan B. You know, it's one thing. It may not have been the first plan, but uh, plan uh, B needs to be uh, an accepted uh, uh, and excited uh, something that the parents are willing and ready to move forward with, not something they're stuck with and are going to have to accept. Um, and and let, me tell, let me tell you, people, sorry, people really do get there. I mean, I, you know, I, I know the audience, and I'm like, yeah, right, I'm really going to be excited about doing donor sperm. 
I, I can tell you that people really do get there. It mm-hmm. just takes time, and you can't force yourself to want it. It just it seems to happen when you have good conversations and perhaps you see a mental health professional who asks mm-hmm. you the right questions and helps support you. But I've had hundreds of patients who, you know, when they were told, look, donor sperm or donor egg is your only option, you know, it's a shock and it's definitely not people's first choice, but they really get to the point where they're excited about it and cannot wait to meet that little person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, let's talk a little um, about the um, uh, the cultural component, or that, and by that I mean um, it was a question that came in from someone. It's very long, so I'm not going to read it. Uh, but uh, there are definitely certain cultures where there is added shame uh, and uh, affiliate. Well, two two components. One certainly the added shame uh, with not being fertile. Uh, and then the added shame or, or uh, unacceptability of, of using a donor, so the need to hide it. Um, both of those are, are cultural issues, uh, are ethnic issues, and, and let's talk a little about that. Uh, Dr. Grill, let me start with you on that one. Sure. I mean, I think that we're practicing now, certainly as mental health professionals, in the spirit of sort of open disclosure in terms of the research we know that's coming out of at least the U.S. and in U.K. and other places. But we are, we're sensitive to the fact that that's not necessarily true in a lot of other parts of the world where yeah. donor gametes are illegal. And if you're raising a child in an environment where that, that's the case, then, then it requires a lot more conversation. So I think there's a, there's a biased sense of disclosure is better and that it's better for the child and it's it's easier not to hold a secret and that, you know, we know from some of the research that secrets tend not to be such a good thing and we know that, you know, you're withholding <laughs> medical information. <laughs> medical information from a yeah. child. Um, and that we know we're, we're operating in a world now where anonymity doesn't exist anymore because of technology yeah. and science and DNA testing and whatnot. So that's the reality of, of the world we're living in. And so it's our job to to have that discussion with people when they come in so they understand the pros and cons of of disclosure. But we see a lot of people internationally at Cornell, and certainly if people come in saying, my relatives will never understand this, or I'm going to go back to a different place and raise this child where this is frowned upon, that is definitely taken into consideration. It's not a hard and fast rule that, you know, you must disclose to a child. It's more a discussion about the pros and cons. I think yeah. we also have to add, you know, the whole issue about disclosing to family and friends. And what I tell every individual or couple who are contemplating donor sperm or donor egg, while they're contemplating it, you know, don't share it with other people because you can't untell. And mm-hmm. so there's, you can always tell, but you can never untell. And so I'd mm-hmm. far rather see them come in and talk to myself or, uh, you know, another mental health professional to explore their concerns and, and everything else rather than talking to friends and family about it. Because you're right, there are a number of cultures which don't accept donor sperm or donor egg. Either they just don't accept it culturally or it is illegal. And so I say during the contemplation phase and perhaps even throughout the pregnancy, you know, think carefully before you tell people. I mean, I do mm-hmm. agree that one needs to tell the child if at all possible, and the technology, I mean, I think by the time these kids are in second grade, they'll be doing their own DNA testing. Um, yeah. But I think I, I, would, I would recommend, I do recommend 
not telling family and friends until you're sure you want them to know. And let me add that creating a family has a lot of resources on that exact topic, who to tell, when to tell. Uh, and we all, and there was uh, just within the last month uh, we did an article on um, two um, people who one found out uh, that they were uh, conceived through donor sperm in a um, biology 101 first year of college class doing the uh, Punnett Square, you know, the and the other one found mm-hmm. out through a, um, over the, um, uh, you know, a, I think it was Ancestry.com, one of the spit-in-the-cup, you know, over-the-counter type of mail order, um, found out uh, that way. I think anonymity is, is a myth. Uh, let me also add one other resource that I was uh, thinking of when, uh, I think it was, uh, Allie, you were talking about the wonderful uh, titles and the, the male perspective and a certain amount of irreverence that, that appeals to the men. There is a book that I really enjoy called How to Make Love to a Plastic Cup, A Guy's Guide to the World of Infertility. <laughs> Great title. I interviewed him. Greg Wolf is the author. I interviewed him. It is uh, so, uh, so you can just, uh, uh, t- I promise if you type in uh, our search box, Making love to a, uh, Make Love to a Plastic Cup, the interview with Greg will come up. It is a. Uh, it's just a really good uh, book. Um, something that has come up a number of times in our uh, community is where there is significant male factor, and either uh, the, uh, the the couples chose for some reason or could not afford uh, uh, ICSI uh, and IVF. Uh, they made the decision to use donor embryo so that neither of the parents have a genetic connection to the child. They felt like uh, genetic parity was important. Allie, thoughts on that? You know, I, I've actually seen it happen. I, 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 you know, and I very much understand why couples may make that decision. I think it would be a very difficult decision. Um, but I, I've had couples make that decision. I think, and I don't know if this is the right thing to say, I think it's a generous um, decision on the on either the, the it's a generous decision on the female partner's side, um, and and I think it's it's a very loving loving gesture. And so when you you know gave that example of the woman who who was told by her mother that she should leave her husband and marry a fertile man, I mean I think this decision is is exactly the opposite. And by yeah. the way, I do want to add that I've heard of. Lots of mothers-in-law making snarky comments, but you know it, it's unusual in, in my world anyway to hear mothers make such snarky comments. But and I've actually hauled mothers-in-law into my office to explain to them the psychological aspects of infertility. Um, and I, well, I suspect in that case the mom was just being protective of her daughter. True, but in this way she is the mother-in-law to the infertile person. Uh-huh. If I understood yep. her, if I understood the question, if I understood uh, the the question, uh, it was her mother, so it was the fertile person's uh-huh. mother. So it was the mother-in-law to the infertile person, who True. was True. Uh, being in uh, insensitive. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the uh, we should note that uh, uh, that that Strong is being released after uh, in 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 conjunction with both Men's Health Month as well as Father's Day. Uh, which I thought was particularly relevant and, and important. 
because Father's Day, uh, which is, is just passed, is uh, is such a hard time. We we offer so much support to women uh, around Mother's Day, uh, but I find that you don't see the same support. Uh, there's not the articles uh, being written about for guys going through Father's Day uh, childless. It's it's in a way as if our society uh, assumes that men don't care as much about being a parent as as women. Uh, Dr. Grill, thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I think that's why we wanted this to come out um, right around Father's Day. Again, Strong has a button you press called Father's Day Insensitivity, right? And there you go. Mm-hmm. You can be sitting on Father's Day opening this up thinking, you know, all this talk about Father's Day is making me miserable. I'm reading right from the app. Don't people get it that it makes me feel like a failure? You yeah. know, so if this is the thought you're having in your head, it'll give a more balanced way of thinking that people don't really understand how difficult Father's Day can be, and it goes on to explain things that you can do on Father's Day. I think Allie and I see it an increase before any holiday, especially Mother's Day and Father's Day in our offices where we need to counsel people around how to get through. And sometimes it's forming your own traditions, you know, going away and not celebrating it at all with other family Mm -hmm. members. Sometimes it's just honoring your own father and focusing on special men in your life, uncles or fathers that you have that you want to focus on. So there's lots of very, you know, behavioral strategies that people can use or they can Mm -hmm. form their own traditions around Father's Day um, to help get through it together just as a couple. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to shift our discussion. Up to this point, we have been talking primarily about uh, where the male is the primary cause for the infertility. But as we talked about at the beginning, and as Dr. Grill so so accurately pointed out, uh, it's really the couple who is infertile. So even if it is the woman who is the primary factor, it is still the couple's inability to have a child. So let's talk a little about, uh, in this case, the impact of infertility as a couple, the impact where the, of the woman's infertility and how that affects the male partner. Dr. Domar, how does that shift from a, uh, a man's perspective? He's not the primary cause. His wife or his partner is the primary cause. Uh, so how does that shift the impact on him? Well, you know, what I hear most often from men, and either in the men I see, you know, for individual couples counseling or, you know, in our mind-body group, the men come to three of the ten sessions, and one of those sessions is an hour and a half where the men just go off with a therapist to talk about, you know, how they're coping. And I've run that session a few times. And, you know, and I hear the same thing from, from men over and over again is that, you know, they feel that they need to be strong for their wives. Like mm-hmm. they have to put on this sort of macho front and say, and, and, you know, sort of spend all their time supporting their wife and having empathy for their wife and, you know, understanding that she feels responsible for their infertility. But in private, what you hear from them is, you know, almost like bottomless grief. Like they mm-hmm. are suffering too. Like, yeah. you, you know, even in cases where it's a female factor, and and they these men you know do have empathy for their wives, but they want a child, and they can't ever express that to their female partner because that'll make her feel more yes. guilty. Yes. And so the only role they can have with her is 
this sort of bottomless um, pot of of support if they, you know, although I have to tell you, I've seen lots of, of women who say their husbands are useless in terms of support. But, you know, I think it's changing <laughs> with time. Um, and so they feel like they have to be supportive of their partner and empathic and everything else, and that it never really occurs to anybody that they are suffering too. And I think that was, you know, probably the impetus for us wanting to do for it as strong is to really acknowledge that, you know, no matter what the cause of the infertility is, men suffer too. There was a private message I received. It really wasn't a question, but it was uh, from a man saying that he had all of his life, I mean, he was a, a junior, his, uh, well, I guess he was a, th- he was a third, and, uh, he, and, and the expectations of not just having a child, but in his mind of having a son who would be the fourth, and he hadn't really given much thought to it, but his wife's infertility was just so hard because this possibility that he had never really thought about, never entered his head that this wouldn't happen. Of course, no, he might have had all girls, but but he said that he could share that information with no one. He could share that feeling with no one. He can't share it with his family because he doesn't want them to blame his wife. He can't share it with his wife because he, she already feels bad. So he is mm-hmm. sitting alone with, I, I guess grief is the, really the accurate word. Um, of They're still in treatment and, and, and still hopeful that, that they will have a child. But um, in the meantime, he's really struggling, and he's struggling silently, um, which is just so hard. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. I mean, I, I think as Dr. Pearl said, that literally, you know, we – started working on Fur to Strong at least a year ago. And at that point, there was almost no research on men and the, the psychological impact of men. And it's sort of weird because in the last, I think, three months, there's been a number of studies and the Resolve Fairing survey um, finally looking at the impact on men. And then a study came out, I think it was last month, showing that in couples who are trying, who aren't doing IVF, but couples who are trying, depression in men is associated with decreased pregnancy rates. And so it's not just that these men are suffering psychologically. You know, it can impact the, their ability. Or, you know, and, and I don't think we really know if it's the, the depression per se or if it's libido or whatever else, but, you know, a man's depression can significantly impact their chances of getting pregnant. I was going to, I'm, I'm glad you raised the issue of research. I was going to ask that question as well. Dr. Grill, have you heard of other uh, research? I had heard that there was some research that has recently been released, and, and as well as the uh, the Faring survey, the Resolve Faring survey, uh, that uh, fortunately asked about that. Uh, any thoughts on current uh, research that is talking about the impact of uh, infertility on the male partner. Yeah, I think Allie just mentioned this one study that we, we literally just read, you know, a few weeks ago about male depression and pregnancy rates. And then there's this, um, the one you mentioned from Faring and and Resolve. There was this amazing survey that came out of the infertility, um, the fertility network in the UK and Leeds Beckett University. They did this mm-hmm. survey together, and it, it was so revealing because they were putting up quotes from these men, and it really said that 93% of the men stated that their well-being had been impacted and Mm -hmm. that men really reported that these issues were emasculating, 
and distressing and isolating and harming their self-identity, and that it was really causing a tremendous amount of stress, depression, anxiety, low self-esteem. So basically everything we already know that that happens to women, it's happening to men too. Men just don't feel entitled to feel it or talk about it. That's and that leaves word, them very entitled. I, yes. Yeah, they're not entitled to to have these feelings, and it's funny to use those terms in in today's society, right? Where we're, a lot of the time it's the reverse. We talk about male entitlement, but in this case, <laughs> yeah. it's men not having the entitlement to their feelings. And if they do try and talk about it, I often see in my office where they'll start to try and say, you know, it's really demoralizing to have to go and give a sample. Yeah. And sometimes I have problems performing in the room giving a sample, and they start to be vulnerable and talk about it. And you see the wives or the partners start to roll their eyes and start to scream and yell, well, I have to do poking and prodding every day, and I have to come in here at 6 o'clock and get blood work, and how dare you talk about how embarrassed you are to have to go give a sample. And so they're cut off, and then they don't mm-hmm. ever bring it up again. But the truth is that yep. this is real for the men, and they, they do need to talk about this. They're, they are entitled to have these feelings and to have them validated. So what can women do to help the, their male partner, um, regardless of where, whether uh, – well, let's separate them, actually, uh, because I think, it, it, I think what the women can do might differ depending on whether it is the uh, woman who is infertile or if it is the man. So uh, in the time we have left, let's talk uh, briefly about – uh, let's say it's the man who is infertile. What advice would you give the women? Now, I know Strong is geared to the men, uh, but let's be honest, we know that women are often the movers and the, the shakers in getting help uh, and in support. So what can a woman do uh, to help her infertile man? Well, so both apps um, do have sections that talk about how to help your partner, that if you're in a relationship what can I do, whether it's my infertility, their infertility, both of our infertility problem, you know, what can I do to show support, empathy, communicate with my partner? So they both are very much geared toward actual things that you can do for the health of the relationship. So that's good. But in terms of, you know, male factor is very tricky because when a man has male factor, you know, the woman usually feels a tremendous amount of anger and resentment but doesn't often feel that she can express that because she Mm -hmm. doesn't want to further shame her partner or make her partner feel upset. The partner also sort of goes underground with it because they're feeling so guilty and they have these thoughts, oh, my God, what if my wife leaves me for someone else? Or, you know, it's so tied to virility and potency that they feel like it's a sexual disorder for them if they have a male factor issue. And so there's so much shame around it that they don't talk about it and they become depressed and anxious about it. And there's a real breakdown then in the couple presenting as we're a team. You know, as you were mentioning before, mm-hmm. this is our problem. We're mm-hmm. in this together. So how mm-hmm. are we going to do this together? And a lot of the counseling is around that, helping the other person understand. So if this were your issue, you know, let's say you needed to be exploring donor egg or you needed to be facing the fact that you had diminished ovarian reserve, you know, how would, how would you want your partner responding to you? Would you, would you feel like you wanted them to be leaving or have feelings of that or insecurities around that? And that helps with the empathy, you know, walking in the other person's shoes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's true the women carry the brunt of this, right? So whether it's male factor or female factor, the women still have to go through the procedures. And so mm-hmm. when it is male factor, there's often a lot of resentment from women. 
you know, that I have to take these medications and go through these procedures because of you. And that doesn't help them see it as a team effort. They're trying someone to build a family on, together. Someone on the support group when somebody was complaining about that said, well, you also have to go through labor, and you're not blaming him for that. So, right. <laughs> I love you know, that. I haven't heard that. Yeah, yeah I thought it was it was uh, it was uh, uh, to the point, shall we say? Um, right. So, uh, anything that the woman can do to uh, get herself in the place and express, as well as showing this to her male partner, that we're in this together. This is a a couple's issue. That we uh, that we're facing. Um, yeah, it's, well as, it's validating yeah. how devastating it is to both people, and it's helping them grieve the losses they're experiencing. But it's helping build a bridge to empathy with one another, so they can really understand what the other person is experiencing and feeling, and as well. And I would also say for the woman to get into therapy for herself um, and by herself, because she may need a place to express the anger and the frustration and the sadness and the grief because she might be feeling that that's not something that she wants to add an extra burden or that she feels like the expressing of it with her partner would just be sending him further underground and and um, uh, shut him down even further. So um, getting into and therapy. And for the men. To, and for the men to get into therapy alone. Well, absolutely, yes. So, yeah, so the one. other thing a, yeah. a partner could do is try to get her, her uh her spouse or her partner into um, the woman could try to get the. Uh, sadly, I, I do see that it's often the woman who is getting the guy into therapy. So, um, and I will often tell the women just bring your partner in and tell them that you would like them to support you, and that's why they're coming in. Once they're in the office of a skilled professional who knows this field, you know, a mental health professional who's working in in fertility. The, the therapist will be skilled enough to know how to engage the man and help them feel comfortable and understood. And, and often then the man will say, you know, do, do you see private patients? Could I come in alone sometime and talk about this stuff? <laughs> and so it's a, re, it's a relief yeah. to find that it's not, you know, mental health doesn't have to be scary. And a lot of the work we do is psychoeducational. It's just sort of talking about what happens when couples go through this. And that in and of itself can be relief to people just to know that it's normal. I'm not going crazy. Everyone feels this way. I think that. It's probably the most important thing uh, because that feeling of, we talked about that earlier, that feeling of being so darn alone, and, and you start thinking you are abnormal, um, that, that nobody else is going to be feeling the way I'm feeling, and, and knowing mm-hmm. that other people are um, takes some of the pressure off. All right, so let's say that in this, uh, the, uh, the woman is the infertile one. Um, and sometimes I hear women say, you know, I, I don't have it in me. I'm, I'm, I've got to deal with me right now. I, I don't want to be the support for my uh, offering support for my partner. But, but let's talk about that. Uh, we've talked about earlier that we know that men are impacted uh, by infertility. There is grief. There is sadness. And there is a sense oftentimes of needing to withhold that information from their partner. So if you are the infertile one and you are a woman, what can you do to make this experience easier for your male partner? 
again, the empathy, understanding that they are also going through this, even though you may be carrying the brunt of it, and you, you need to be validated for that. Um, but to understand that certainly if there's miscarriages involved and this roller coaster ride of, you know, the hopes and fears and then crashing down if it doesn't work, the men are on that roller coaster ride. They're strapped in right mm-hmm. beside you. So it's it's not that <laughs> yeah. they're, you know, on the sidelines waiting for you to get off that ride. They're there, and, they, and they're they're riding those highs and lows. And stereotypically, and of course it's not always true, but stereotypically men men like to fix things. And so if they see the person that they love suffering, it's devastating for them. So they're going through their own grief, and then the woman that they they love and care about is going through grief and suffering, and they can't fix it. So that leaves them feeling really helpless and not knowing mm-hmm. what to do and not having the tools to know what to do. And so women need to help their partners get through that. And I know that they are carrying the, the burden and the brunt, and, and but they can get the help they need by by figuring out what they need. And it's interesting sometimes when you ask a woman, well, what is it that you need from your partner to help you feel more supported as you go through this? Sometimes they don't know. So sometimes just sitting in a therapy session and talking about, well, what would that look like? Would it look like him checking in with you three times a day, texting you while he's at work and then coming home and the first thing out of his mouth is, how was today? How, uh, you know, how was the appointment? So that they're there supporting you. Is it going to the appointments with you? Is it giving you the injections? So there's so many things that people can start to brainstorm to feel like they're in it together. And sometimes it's just communicating. People don't sit and talk about it, so they don't know. And men can't read minds. So usually men feel very relieved, by the way, to have concrete suggestions. Yeah. So when the women yeah. say, yes, this is, these are the ten things I need from you, the men are very motivated. They're writing it down. They're putting alarms in their phones to go off to remind themselves. I mean, they want to help. Sometimes they just are not raised or socialized or know or can read the minds of their partners to know what to do. We got Give them a, the tools. Uh, Give them the tools, and I, what I particularly like is give them concrete tools, not pie in the sky, just make me feel better, or but but something very specific, uh, and the, probably the more specific, especially at the beginning, it seems like the more specific, the better, uh, uh, and, and not trying to overgeneralize to all men because men certainly are not uh, you know all the same, but I do mm-hmm. think that that specificity. Is is helpful, uh, which is something that I think that the uh, the Fertistrong app is certainly helpful for. We have time for one last question, and that's from Louisa. It's a little less of a question, but she said, "My grief scares my husband. He withdraws, and then I withdraw. We're in a vicious cycle. I don't know how to break." Yeah, the avoidance withdrawal is is a definite outcome of of fertility treatment, and certainly if if you're in it for a long time, you see this vicious cycle. So it, it it's normal, and and she's right to be concerned and want to get help for it. The grief is is really overwhelming. As I mentioned before, all the research shows that it's probably the most overwhelming life crisis and psychological mm-hmm. crisis that a couple will go through together. Mm-hmm. So you can't minimize this this grief. And mm-hmm. getting the help to come back together doesn't take much. You know, just learning to to say, hey, we're going through a horrible time. This is terrible mm-hmm. for us. This is devastating. Mm-hmm. We need to come together and figure out how we're going to work together like we would any other crisis in our life. Sometimes just the acknowledgement of sitting down and saying it, and of course, seeking help. 
you know, you have resources listed. Resolve has resources listed. Mm-hmm. There's the MHPG, Absolutely. the Mental Health Professional Group. There's, mm-hmm. you know, over 400 therapists out there that are trained in this area. So reach out. People can help mm-hmm. you break this cycle. And it's not there as is. hard as you think. And the uh, the other thing that you can do, and you can do it right now, and that is to ask your husband to download the Strong app at com, and you should download the Ferticom app, which is at ferticomapp.com. Um, it's something concrete uh, that you can do to help yourself right now, and, and, and then I would, of course, second, third, fourth, what you said about uh, finding a mental health professional, preferably one that specializes in, in reproductive medicine, um, there is nothing like therapy and for, from someone who knows this field. Uh, and we're not talking long-term uh, therapy. We're talking uh, usually short-term therapy to help you cope with what really is a crisis in many ways. So, Sometimes uh, just one session will do it. Yeah, well, there you go. Mm-hmm. All the better. Sometimes just yep. one session there. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Elizabeth Grill and Dr. Ali Domar, for being with us today to talk about the impact of infertility on the male partner. Let me remind Thanks everybody. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, let me remind everybody that the this this resource, as well as all of our resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our partners who believe in our mission of providing unbiased, medically accurate support to help you in your uh, infertility journey. One such partner is Manhattan Cryobank. They are dedicated to helping clients have healthy babies by analyzing a client's DNA in combination with the DNA of prospective sperm donors to provide the client with a personalized catalog of safer donor matches. In addition to donor sperm services, Manhattan Cryobank offers a full range of andrology and fertility preservation services. And I know that everyone is going to want to immediately go out and download the apps that we mentioned. The Strong app is the one geared towards men, and it has just been released. And you can get that at FertiStrong.com, F-E-R-T-I, FertiStrong.com. Dot com. And if uh, uh, you are a woman and uh, are also struggling with your infertility, uh, we've been talking about the Ferticom app for a while. I love it. Uh, so check that out too, FertacomApp.com. It's all one word, FertacomApp.com. And thank you so much for joining us today, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Right now at the Home Depot, you'll save up to 35% off appliance special buys, like a GE Appliance's top-load washer and dryer pair with deep clean and deep rinse options, a reliable heavy-duty agitator, and four precise water levels, just $4.78 each. Wash, dry, save, repeat. Today is the day for doing with Spring Black Friday Savings now at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only while supplies last. Gas dryer extra C-store for details vowed through April 17th. Now at the Home Depot, save up to 35% off appliance special buys, like the Samsung stainless steel side-by-side refrigerator, just $9.98. You save $300. It's big enough to hold 25 bags of groceries. Unload those, and if that makes you thirsty, you'll really love the external ice maker and water dispenser. Today is the day for doing. Spring Black Friday savings now at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only while supplies last. See store for details valid through April 17th.